CPI, PPI, and consumer sentiment. Welcome. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Here we go. Coming up, our week in review. Also, it's an often asked question, how much insurance do I need? We're going to talk to our financial planning manager about that. He gets that question a lot. We go over that for all of our clients. Ask Annex is on the way toward the end of the show. Fortune hunters and gold diggers, when money appears, sometimes people appear. They'd like some of it, and it's not theirs. That is on the way. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist, is in the studio. Welcome. It's great to be here. Dave Spano, our president and CEO, Annex Wealth Management. Welcome to you. Yeah, thanks, Danny. You nailed it. CPI and PPI was the big story this week. And of course, CPI focuses consumer price index and PPI is producer price index. And we had a producer price report that came out late this week and it was heavier than what we expected it to be. We thought at some point, Brian, that perhaps the deflationary environment that is in China would be imported to some extent, and we really haven't seen that. That is one of the interesting dynamics here is for many, many years, we were importing deflation, so lower prices from China, and you know they were the factory to the world. But now we actually are seeing some of those producer prices tick up a little bit. Now, thankfully, I do have to point out that On a year-over-year basis, the producer price index increased only 0.8%, but that's kind of headed the wrong way. China has been struggling with deflation, so an outright decline in prices. We thought we might get some of that. But honestly, you know, we've been seeing a lot of this more near-shoring and close-shoring, friend-shoring is what people call it sometimes. And so a lot of trade, it's actually moving through to Mexico and to Canada instead of directly from China. So maybe that's part of the dynamic. I think you're going to think this is funny. I read the report, and you're you're the guy with the PhD in economics, but uh, I read that report, and I found some funny things, and funny not haha, but one of them was the service costs yeah. were up, and there was a lot of that went into that. But here in the United States, you know, we did talk about rental equivalency, folks, which is the real estate going up, and of course, some other things still remain strong, which would be like wage inflation. But service cost was up. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. So that was both in the consumer prices and the producer prices is the strength in service prices. So what we've seen since, oh, maybe about a year and a half ago was goods prices declining, but yet service prices rising. That's what the Fed has been really worried about is whether or not stronger wage growth is going to lead to stronger consumer price growth, which then makes their job that much harder. Um, I think, honestly, we're going to get a reprieve in that because I don't think wages are growing at an unsustainably fast rate. So hopefully some of this is, I don't want to have to use the word, but maybe transitory. Mm. <laughs> no, that's the word that we didn't like, of course, used by the Federal Reserve, and they were unfortunately very wrong on that. But here's the other thing. You talked about the Fed's difficult job, uh, and one of them, of course, is commodity prices continue to go up. We watched the price of crude oil continue to tick up this week. Yeah, the price of crude oil has been going up. And so we've had a number of reports come out. So there's reports from like the Energy Information Agency in the United States. There's also the International Energy Agency, which is more international. And both of them are giving forecasts suggesting that demand for oil is continuing to rise faster than what they thought, mainly because you know people are driving again. Right. And yet the 
supply picture is still a little contained. You know, the U.S., the producers aren't ramping up production as much. And that's just because of years upon years of regulation and underinvestment. It's one of the reasons why when we talk on the investment committee, we've been overweight energy is just we think that the longer term dynamics favor higher prices. And we believe that could then result in better cash flows to investors. And not only that, not only here in the United States are we seeing more demand, but Europe has come back online and we do expect China at some point to straighten out their house as well. And that's the reason why when we talk about overweights and underweights in people's portfolios, Danny, we're talking about where we should move the chips around. And that's what we do on a daily basis. When you hire a firm like ours, we do this on a daily basis. We go into your account and we make those proactive moves. If your portfolio has been sitting still. This is not a time to set it and forget it, and we'd like to help. Investment and retirement planning, tax planning and estate planning, we do it as a fee-only fiduciary. That is our Week in Review, available as a podcast and delivered Sundays in Axiom Newsletter. Saturday, August 12th, Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. We are going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. In the studio, Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist at Annex Wealth Management, the author of Graphonomics, brand new version up at AnnexWealth.com. Also, Dave Spano, president and CEO, Annex Wealth Management. Thanks, Danny. You know, Brian, we were talking earlier about interest rates, and of course, they did tick up this week. We saw a spike in the 10-year yield uh, up significantly, so that auction that they had was a bit concerning. Yeah, it, it has been interesting as far as just the volume volume of issuance from the Treasury. Now, it is no big secret about the debt and deficit problem that the United States has. Mm -hmm. But there was a surprise as far as the types of bonds that the Treasury plans on issuing to help fund that, because they can do short-term ones like Treasury bills, they can do Treasury notes or Treasury bonds. Treasury bonds are those long-term ones. And some of those auctions that they have have been pretty healthy, but others have been a little on the light side, looking like people don't really want to lock in those longer term ones, so those treasury bonds. And it has been a little concerning. And, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of the health of the economy next week. We're going to get a bunch of information. One of those is some FOMC notes, and the second is retail sales, both coming next week. Yeah, it's a big week. Uh, Actually, most people really like looking at the first week of the month because you get the employment situation report. But I like those ones about retail sales, industrial production, and the FOMC minutes because, to me, those are a really good reading about what's actually going on. You know, employment situation, that's great as far as wages, employment, but what are people spending their money on and how are businesses doing? Now, the FOMC minutes, when those come out on Wednesday, I am very curious about whether or not this was indeed a hesitant hike Mm -hmm. that they just did. They had a hawkish hold Mm -hmm. and then they are doing a hesitant hike, but how hesitant is it? Because we've gotten a lot of Fed speakers coming out lately with really, really mixed messages. Some are saying, hey, we don't need to do anymore. And others are saying there's a lot more work to be done yet. You know, you talk about the birds that they're compared to. Sometimes they're hawks and sometimes they're doves. But you came up with another bird. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes they can be chickens, right, as far as if uh, how cautious are they. And that's actually what I thought that they did at the last meeting, which was this hesitant hike. They felt like they needed to hike rates because that's how they had set expectations. But listening to Chair Powell, he came across almost like a little bit of a chicken there as far as did we do too much yeah. already? And, of course, they did too little too early, and that caused part of the problem. 
in my opinion. Let's switch gears and talk about market returns. And we have some reports coming next week as well. You know, we talk about the health of economy. Part of that is the health of some of the reports that we're getting from individual names. They are. And, you know, this is earning season. We're towards the tail end of that. So there's this cluster of weeks in which the S&P 500 companies report, and we're kind of towards the tail end of that. And next week, I'm really looking forward to hearing what Walmart has to say right. and Home Depot because they do have their finger on the pulse of American consumers. Well, they have they have also have their hand in my pocket because <laughs> I can tell you I, they, I go into Home Depot and they say hello Dave when I walk through that door. So, we've missed you. Yeah, we've missed you. Where have you been? They roll Where, out the red carpet for bucket. you. Yeah, or an orange bucket is what it really is. So yeah, there's a lot of reports that that are coming out that we're going to watch and you know you've talked a little bit about this rolling recovery and this continues throughout the sectors. It, it does and as far as you know, energy has been doing better because now oil prices are moving higher. Tech has been stumbling a little bit, maybe under the weight of too high of expectations for what artificial intelligence might mean. And so we went through a period of a roving recession for the economy. First, it was manufacturing, then housing. Now, maybe consumer spending is slowing. But are we actually going to get more of this rolling recovery? Because service sector spending is probably still going to stay positive, even if it slows. In the last 15 seconds, what is your suggestion to people who are hearing this and how they take advantage of what we're talking about? Oh, I would really encourage people to reach out to us, do that portfolio review, because it's not a set it and forget it kind of environment. Have a professional sit down with you and just review things. Make sure you're on track for that long-term plan. Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management, is part of that team. Our investment team is stacked. That's why we talk about the markets a lot, because we can. We're not getting this emailed to us. We have our team in place, and we can do it for you as well. The retirement planning, the tax planning, and the estate planning. Head to the website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. How much insurance do you need? It depends on who you ask. We wondered, and we asked our financial planning manager, who knows an awful lot about the subject. We'll cover that after a break on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management, joined by Eric Strom, Financial Planning Manager, CFP at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks, Danny. It's an age-old question. How much life insurance does one need? That's what we're going to explore here. Are you ready to rock on this one? I am. There we go. First question might be the toughest. Is there a correct answer to this question? Well, it's one of those questions like asking, how many Christmas gifts should I buy for my kid, right? There's not a clear exact answer, but there's an acceptable range and there's a a sweet spot. I nosed around on the internet and I found some stuff. In fact, I was inundated with solicitations for insurance, page after page after page of Google results. What I did find was a couple of rules of thumb I want to run by you. And the first is multiply your income by 10 to find out how much coverage you need. Yeah, this is a common rule of thumb. It's not a bad starting point. Think about this. A common reason to buy life insurance is for income replacement. And using myself as an example, I have a couple young kids, so definitely have a lot of life insurance on myself and my wife for replacing that income. But think about this. If you're younger, much younger, let's say you might need 12 or 15 times your income because you have many decades Mm. of income in front of you. And also insurance is less expensive at that point and your income trajectory might be higher, right? Over the years, you might make more money if you're starting off just as a fresh graduate, for example. 
On the other hand, if you're closer to retirement and you've already built wealth, you may have less need than 10 times your income, or you may have no need at all. So that 10 times your income is a pretty good starting point. Also think about though, you've got parents who do not work, but still provide a lot of value. So having coverage on a parent who just works at home and is not making any income at all, but taking care of the kids, that is very important as well. Yeah. Mary Poppins is not cheap, right? Somebody watching the kids, right? That's right. How much insurance do you need? Rule of thumb number two, 10 times your income plus $100,000 per child for college. How about that? Well, it's better, right? Because we're starting to consider more of those details. But let's say, for example, your kids are already in college and maybe you're in your early 50s. A lot of families in that situation, we see kind of that need shifting away from life insurance and even also disability insurance, right? Because you've got less working years ahead of you that you need to protect with coverage. So yeah, that's a little bit better of a rule of thumb. Eric Strom, financial planning manager at Annex Wealth Management and a husband and a father. And I'm sure he's thought more about this question than most of us. How much life insurance do I need? Rule of thumb number three is what is called the dime formula. Can you break that down? Yeah, dime. So your debt, your income replacement, which we talked about, your M for mortgage and E for education, which is that college expense. This is probably my favorite rule of thumb because you are accounting for those most common large expenses that you would use life insurance. And with this rule, you are more likely to get enough coverage because remember term life insurance, for example, is very, very affordable. Term life insurance is great for those of us who are building wealth efficiently outside of life insurance in accounts such as, for example, a Roth IRA or retirement plans through work. And so that is good because if you use that dime formula, you can get a little bit more granular with your need. And on top of that income replacement, maybe you use 10 times your income there, but you're adding in those other debts and mortgages and college expenses as well. And since the coverage is so affordable for many people to get that pure term risk coverage, then a formula like Dime is a pretty good way to go. There you go. Those are three decent rules of thumb to get you thinking. But when it comes to serious financial planning, Eric and the rest of the financial planning team dig in deep. They work the numbers, things that you might not be thinking about. It's what we do for our clients at Annex Wealth Management, turning things around. And you kind of referenced it earlier. Is there a point when somebody doesn't need life insurance? Yeah. So going back to that dime formula, let's say you're in your mid fifties, for example, your mortgage balance is probably a little lower. Now time has gone by, you've paid it down somewhat, and you also have less working years ahead of you to protect for that I in dime, the income replacement. So especially if your net worth has grown over the years, hopefully you've been building that nest egg, you might actually be at the point where maybe you're self-insured in, in terms of that dime formula. So for that common reason, you may not need life insurance. I will put a caveat out there that there are many families out there who have unique reasons to buy life insurance. For example, business owners who may have a liquidity need if there was a death, real estate investors, same concept there, or higher net worth or ultra high net worth families sometimes use life insurance for various unique planning reasons as well. But setting those aside for many or most of us, when you're in your mid fifties, we do see that need in general start to shift away from life insurance and more towards long-term care insurance, which is a risk that many families are facing in the retirement years. And Eric, assessing our clients' life insurance, it's what we do. It is. We're always trying to assess the risk of life insurance or a disability or a long-term 
care health event, these are very important risks and a financial plan allows you to assess your need to actually, do I need to buy any of this type of insurance? Eric Strom, Financial Planning Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for your insight. Thanks, Danny. Still to come on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Fortune Hunters and Gold Diggers. It's Saturday, August 12th, bottom of the hour, 30 minutes down, 30 minutes to go. This is 620 WTMJ. Time for Ask Annex. You've got a question for us, you head to the website, AnnexWealth.com. If we can help, you always click that Get Started button in the studio. Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager. Welcome. Hey, Danny. we got Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager. Welcome to you. Thanks, Danny. Here is our first question. I was told using a HELOC, a home equity line of credit, in retirement is frowned upon. Why would that be? Well, probably because in retirement, your primary source of income might be reduced basically to your pension, Social Security and your savings and probably some withdrawals from the portfolio. So relying on that HELOC for ongoing expenses could strain your budget. But there can be situations where HELOC in retirement makes sense. So if you have a specific short term need, such as a major home repair, and you have a solid plan to repay that HELOC quickly, it might be a reasonable option. So it's not totally off the table, but it has to be used in the right situation. HELOCs were pretty great when interest rates were so low, yeah, right? Free yeah. money never hurts. Right. Next question. How do analysts come up with such accurate earnings estimates? Forget about target stock price, which we know analysts are often wrong about. What I'm surprised at is how their EPS and revenue estimates usually come very close to the actual report. Yeah, that's a great question. And for this, I reached out to Jason Cooper, one of our research analysts. He's on tons of conference calls every single quarter. And with this quarter's earnings season wrapping up, I, he's finally coming up for air at this point. And so I asked him, and, and really what he dug down to is that, especially for really well-known large companies, management tend to be really, really specific with what their guidance is and will walk analysts through their entire profit and loss statements. Moreover, you know, if management expects to miss, a lot of times they will pre-announce what those earnings are going to be. They don't want the market to be surprised when it comes to earning time periods. And they, from a fiduciary standpoint of the company and the stockholders, they want to get ahead of that as well too. So they'll go ahead and get, get in front of those information, but they're really open and honest if you're asking them those questions. Plus they have to put all those statements out there for you as well, too. So analysts spend their entire day, every single day, pouring into those, reviewing what's going on, reading management commentary, the footnotes and the statements. Um, They are able to talk to management teams as well, too. So they're really able to get into the weeds. Companies also really, as well as the analysts, don't want to look foolish when those things come out there. So they tend to be pretty honest. There's a lot of communication where you do see a lot where maybe there's some more variance on there. It's the smaller companies. There's not a lot of analysts there. There's not a big consensus of what is going to happen then because everyone's going to have their own views. There's not enough people to bring that into that middle part of that bell curve in terms of what's going to happen. So there's usually a lot more opportunity there for things to be further off. I like earnings season, but I'm not Jason Cooper sitting on all these calls, right? Do you like earnings season? It's really interesting. I don't dig into him as much as Jason do. I, I get much more from the conversations with him, but every time I walk by his desk right now, he's got headphones in and he's just on another call taking notes and reviewing stocks that you know that we watch for our clients. Sarah, I think they're kind of interesting. Do you like I, it? I do too. I mean, I like the volatility that goes along with it in the market. So it just keeps it, things exciting and you just, it's a special time of the quarter in the market. So it's it's fun. Ask Annex, got a question, you head to our website, look for the Ask tab, it's AnnexWealth.com. Next, if my goal is to leave something for my kids, wouldn't it make more sense to take Social Security early rather than spend down money I could leave behind? 
Well, leaving an inheritance for your children is important, but it's also important to make sure that your financial well-being is taken care of first and foremost. Various factors go into deciding when to take Social Security, and sure, taking it early could benefit your legacy goals, but it's important to consider some other things as well. Like your benefit will be permanently reduced, so that could impact your lifestyle and your financial lifestyle if you have longevity in your family. And think of that spousal benefit. That amount will be reduced as well. But one of the strategies that we like to use when legacy is important to our clients is Roth conversion. So converting that traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, paying the taxes in your lifetime so your children will receive an account that has tax-free growth and tax-free withdrawals. Because typically your children will be inheriting that money in their highest earning years, it really benefits them to have that tax-free account. So keep in mind, taking Social Security early will increase your income and that could reduce the amount of annual Roth conversions that makes sense from a tax standpoint. Got about a minute for this one, Matt. I've noticed that very often a stock will fall when quarterly reports seem positive. For example, company X reported today and beat all analysts' expectations, yet the stock has fallen 4%. I don't understand. Yeah, another great earnings question here. Um, yeah, you know, you got to think about you're investing, you're investing for the future. So companies that have had great quarters, a lot of times the market's already priced that in and they did it three months, six months, a year ago. So the market might have already produced the strong results that are correlated to that strong earnings quarter, but it's just already happened. The other thing is maybe that they came out and said, yeah, great. Our last quarter was awesome. Our last year is awesome. However, going forward, things are changing. Maybe the market overall is slowing down. The economy is starting to slow down and they're going to be really hit from a slowdown within the economy. Maybe they're having an issue with a product or something that hasn't hit their balance sheet yet because they've already been profitable. They sold the things that are going well. But think of a car company that has to issue a recall and they're going to have worse looking forward earnings because of that. You know, So the market always is trying to look forward. So if the market's selling off or the stock's selling off after a really good earnings report, it's probably due to forward guidance. Matt Moore is the investment team manager. Thanks. Thank you. Sarah Kyle, wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. You're welcome, Danny. Fortune hunters and gold diggers. They are people who want to help themselves to somebody else's money. And you might have seen it firsthand. It's a danger for you and for somebody you love. And we're going to talk about it next. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? Deanne Phillips is Director of Client Learning Development, a CFP, a CDFA, and an ABF. Did I get that one right? Yes, the you ABF. did. All right. Well, welcome back. Thank you. I am not sure which of the many hats that you wear this fits under, but let's give it a whirl. We're going to talk about fortune hunters and gold diggers. This is a cautionary tale for all of us because it happens. Oh, it does. When money is involved, the wrong kind of people can start to assemble. It can happen to you and it can happen to some. Somebody you love. Definitely. I mean, okay, Danny, history and literature are full of fortune hunters. Petruchio in Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew comes to mind. Jane Austen's 19th century, the idea of marriage as a business contract was as powerful as George Wickham's desire for Georgiana Darcy's 30,000 pounds in Pride and Prejudice, which wow. you might have seen. So until all too recently, the wealth of that bride was a consideration that ranked alongside any other factor in her desirability. But in today's age, there are more and more women, especially being left widows. And, you know, if you think about it, they have multiple inheritances from their parents, potentially, their partners, whom they tend to outlive, as well as their own career savings buildup. And many of these women have left the financial investing to their partners and once alone. And remember, the average age of widowhood, 58. So they're also left vulnerable to all sorts of potential partners and investors who can seemingly come out of the woodwork, right? 
there's a phrase, con men don't look like con men, and we need to learn from that. Yeah, you know, investing is risky enough without worrying about whether there's a salesperson out to fleece you, right? So, but effective con artists have to disguise their true motives. They take great pains to blend in, dress for success, seemingly know what to say. However, they often push poorly understood financial products and rely upon confusion to rule the day. They stand ready to assume full responsibility of your financial decisions for you, but don't let them. Remember, they try to bring out your worst traits, greed, fear, insecurity. If you find yourself making investment-related decisions based only on emotions, watch out. We're talking about fortune hunters and gold diggers. This is a broad brush. Let's talk about fortune hunters first. Do fortune hunters tend to be related? Well, you know, these are people who all of a sudden show up after someone passes. Maybe they read the obituary or hear otherwise of someone dying, and they swoop in for no good reason. Now, this could be a long-lost relative, second cousin, twice removed, coming Mm. to help their dear auntie sort out things. And before you know it, they've ingratiated themselves to Auntie in a very short period of time and convinced her to change her will, disinheriting her immediate family. We've seen this. Those are the fortune hunters. How about the gold diggers? Very similar. This tends to be those who come out and prey on the lonely and the brokenhearted. So in terms of dating and swiftly espousing themselves. Right. I mean, think of mom or dad. Maybe they've lost their mate and all of a sudden a new girlfriend or boyfriend shows up. What are signs that we need to watch out for? Well, you know, so it depends. So a very sudden change of a relationship status and also withdrawing from present family and friends, you know, not answering the phone or being unavailable. All of a sudden, it's only that caretaker or the boyfriend or girlfriend that you're hearing from and not your parent or relative. And that person might be putting up the block. They might be. We've seen this happen. But when it comes to managing assets, every investment involves risk. But when you hear a con artist explain it, the investment may be too good to be true. So you need to trust your inner voice if you hear claims like, this is a hot tip from an inside source, then the stock will go through the roof. Oh, or this one, if you hear your investments guaranteed on the return, there's no way to lose money. Get in now or you'll be left out cold. So people are trying to make themselves from an investment point of view. They want to make it easy, want to make be helpful. This deal's so great. I invested in it myself. Everyone did great. Be especially careful if the salesperson downplays the downside or denies that risk exists. You know, it's hard because all of a sudden mom or dad has a new boyfriend or girlfriend. We're the kids, right? What what are we supposed to do? It's tough. And, you know, it's not only just a boyfriend or girlfriend. Sometimes it's a caretaker position as well. Oh, yeah. We can hear about people in this position all of a sudden inheriting everything over family. Now, while this person might actually truly be value-added and well-meaning, there needs to be, as a child, a careful selection process to make sure there are insurances, bonding, values in place through a company that's well-vetted when you select a companion or caretaker also. So if there's a fortune hunter or gold digger that sniffs out an inheritance and there's a swoop in, what what happens then? Generally, when we think about these con artists or people who are trying to convince somebody to invest their money a certain way without due diligence, you have to watch out if that salesperson becomes reluctant to provide information on their background, educational history, work experience, information on where your money will be actually held. Is it through a third-party custodian? What commission or other compensation is that? 
that salesperson going to receive? And what's their connection with the venture and affiliates that they're suggesting? Are they selling a product they make commission on? And is it really in your best interest? Now, we're not saying there's a problem with commission, all right? Salespeople often work on that. But you have to know if you're being sold a product. And don't be rushed into a decision. In times like this, whenever there's any kind of a change, death, divorce, disability, anything that leads you into a situation of dismay, gather a trusted resource with you, a friend, a relative, uh, maybe an advisor, a second set of eyes and ears. Bring that person with you to make those decisions and never feel rushed into a financial decision. Fortune hunters and gold diggers, unfortunately, they exist. Deanne Phillips, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Quick reminder, this show is going to be available as a podcast at the top of the hour. If you came in partway through it, maybe you want to hear the whole thing again, that'd be great. You can get it at all the usual spots like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get them. I'm Danny Clayton, now in the studio with Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. So the writer strike continues, and it is kind of squeezing off the pipeline of any shows that are yeah. going to be on network television. Television, movies, everything is suspended. And the problem with most American consumers where this isn't impacting them is there's so much content out there. At least mm-hmm. that's my case. My wife and I are catching up on Silicon Valley, which was a show that came out in 2014. Did you watch it? Or oh, no? I loved that one. You know, yeah. It's really interesting because I've learned a lot and I've seen the, the phrase series funding. Uh-huh. And that's a big thing. That's part of the show. Yeah. And I've asked you before, and we talked about it off air, where... This is a lot of institutional monies, but sometimes private individuals get Mm -hmm. into this. And my question is, at what point does, for high net worth individuals, do investments like that become attractive? Mm. Because if you're in traditional everything else, and then you've got extra money, you hear about people investing in that. And something made the news recently. So one of the things that made the news recently is that there's been an increase in raising money for what are called private credit funds. It's kind of this hot new thing. And it's not really that new. It's been around for a long time, but it goes in and out of fashion. And these private credit funds are a way to gather money from high net worth individuals. So you have to be oftentimes what's called an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser. So those are certain like income, investable asset or experience thresholds that you have to meet in order to invest in these types of strategies. And what they do is they basically aggregate people's money together to make investments in non-publicly traded securities, right? Most of the time we think about stocks and bonds, things that you can buy through mutual funds, ETFs, or directly if you purchase the securities themselves. But there's a whole world, a bigger world actually, of sometimes what are called private markets or private assets. And so like the Silicon Valley one, that's a really fascinating one because They can raise money through uh, venture capital firms who basically gather money from institutions or high net worth individuals and make long term, fairly speculative investments. Now, the payoffs, they can be good, but they can also be zero. Right. And so there's heightened risks with these limited liquidity. And it's not something to really just jump into. It's something that we spend a lot of time talking to these different sponsors of these types of investments to learn 
learn more about them? You know, like, is it appropriate for a client's portfolio? At what point would it be appropriate for them? And then is the client educated enough about the risks and the opportunities? But honestly, over the last like 20 years, it's been tough to beat the public markets as far as stocks and bonds. But if we are going into a world of higher, more volatile interest rates, maybe we've got some stretched valuations in the public markets, are there more opportunities in these private markets? What are these funds used for? Yeah. Uh, so if it's the way that I think about it is you have private equity, private credit and private real estate. OK, so those are kind of the three prongs to it. You have other things, too, but generically. So it can invest in, like, let's say on the private real estate side about, you know, shopping malls or mm. that's not a hot thing right now. Or it could be like multifamily real estate. So buying up those properties or basically what you do is you become a limited partner. So the person who's sponsoring the development they're the general partner and then you can purchase in as a limited partner and you provide your money but then you also hopefully get some of the gains as well down the road private credit would be trying to fill a void where if banks are cutting back then we need to have somebody kind of lend to small and mid-sized businesses and these private credit funds, that's what they tend to focus on. Interesting stuff. Is that something we help our clients with if that's appropriate? It is. It's something that's actually something central to what I do as far as with alternatives and the private markets. It's a lot of fun to have those conversations about the stories behind what they're investing in, but it really needs to be appropriate for the client. That's first and foremost what we're focused on. We're almost out of time. Graphonomics, brand new version. Yes, so Graphonomics is coming out, and that's focusing on recession risks. It might be too early to say that there aren't any. And then we're also looking at inflation, about the sticky core inflation that we've got. And then debts and deficits, it's a perpetual problem. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, thanks. Thank you. You know, folks, we help plan for the retirement you desire. We're going to help you take the steps and walk alongside as a true partner, as a fee-only fiduciary partner, too. It only takes a couple of minutes to get that conversation started. Click the Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. We'll be back here next Saturday at 10 a.m. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ.